How many men do you have? 18,000. If I go to King's Landing and bend my knee to Joffrey... You would never be allowed to leave, no. Our best hope, our only hope, is that you can defeat them in the field. And if I lose? Do you know what happened to the Targaryen children when the Mad King fell? They were butchered in the sleep. On the orders of Tywin Lannister. And the years have not made him kinder. If you lose, your father dies, your sisters die, we die. Well, that makes it simple then. I suppose it does. Hey everybody and welcome to our podcast. I'm Duncan. And I'm Wendy. And this is Game of Microphones episode 50, the big 5-0, halfway to Woo-hoo. 100. And I'd like to take a moment to welcome our special guest host, Wendy, to the show. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. It's been an honor to have such loyal listeners and participants to the podcast, and Wendy has been a consistent presence on our show in the Ravens Calls section and on our Facebook page with her fun and excellent feedback and takes on events within the series. So I am looking forward to our conversation today, Wendy. Thank you, Duncan. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Just so you guys know, this is a spoilery podcast. Yes. So we are covering the series again from the perspective of someone who's seen all the episodes so we can talk about context and everything. There will be spoilers up through season seven, episode seven. So uh, let's uh, jump right into it. This is our top five highlights of Game of Thrones season one, episode eight, the pointy end. All right. So, Wendy, what do you think of this episode? How do you like this one? I love this episode. Um, revisiting it was so great. Uh, they're all so young. <laughs> I know, all right? All the little Stark kids. Green as um, grass. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's great. And it's amazing how far they have come in in seven seasons. It's just amazing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And you can really see in this episode, everything is gearing up. Yeah, the climax. big time. This is, yeah, yes. the, things are really starting to move in this episode. Yes, and everybody is moving and trying to get into place and uh, really great episode. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, the last episode, things started kicking off in King's Landing with Ned being betrayed and taken captive. And then in this episode, it's sort of kicking off everywhere else with Rob calling the banners and Tywin having his army in the field and whatnot. So, the, yes. yeah, the game is just beginning. Yep. <laughs> in full. Yep. And everybody is jockeying to get yeah. into the right position. Yeah, big time. Yeah. So what's your uh, number five? My number five is Arya and Sirio Farrell. Nice. Yeah. Um, one of the first scenes 
is those two um, opening up with Aria and Sirio continuing their dancing lessons, which of course are sword fighting lessons. <laughs> and Marin fucking Trant comes in. Marin fucking Trant. <laughs> the greatest swordsman um, in the world killed by Marin fucking Trant. <laughs> the greatest swordsman in the world was fighting with a wooden sword. Yeah. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't even have a sword. Right. <laughs> it was great. Um, and the Lannister men come to secure Arya and Sirio defends her with just his wooden sword. Um, and I definitely couldn't help but think about uh, those comments that the Hound made. I know he's one of your favorite characters. He's one of my favorite ones as well. Yeah. And this is the last time that we see Sirio. It's really uh, sad. Um, I, I actually read in my research that Maisie Williams asked um, either Benioff or Weiss if Sirio might have survived, and they told her no. Oh, <laughs> brutal. Yeah. It's all you Sirio um, theorists the, out there. Shut right. down. But I know the question still remains, you know, since we didn't see his uh, death was off camera. Right. <laughs> Um, and then Arya's running for her life, and her first instinct is to find Needle. Yes. Um, and the arrogant stable boy who um, probably shouldn't have done as much monologuing as he did. Yeah, he gave away too much of his position. <laughs> yeah. Uh, grabs Arya, and Arya wheels on him, driving her sword straight through his gut. And she definitely looks a little bit shocked, but she quickly recovers and moves on and as we know, that is Arya's first kill. It is. And uh, yes. did not even hesitate <laughs> for for no. a split second with that. Stick him with the pointy end. There we go. Title of the episode, the pointy end. <laughs> yes. And recovered from it pretty quickly, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. A sign of things to come. She's a, yes. she's a ruthless little girl, that one. Yep. Pretty and, uh, intense. Looking back on the episode... Uh, made me think about Arya's journey. Ever since Arya left Winterfell, she's been running from place to place and person to person. Some were, you know, people that were looking out for her. Some were people who definitely wanted to use her. Um, and I was thinking of all the people that shaped Arya to be who she becomes by by season seven. You know, there was Ned and John. John especially giving her needle. Mm, yeah, big time. Yeah. Ned encouraging her to go on her own path. Yeah. Um, Syria, who taught her to be a survivor. You know, what do we say to the gods of death? Not today. Not today. And I think Arya lived by that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Not, not today. Not not today. And then there was Yorin, yeah. who taught her his way of coping with the vengeance, which was to list the names of the people. Right. That had a huge influence on her. Yeah. She would do it every night yeah. before falling asleep. So I think all the people that she met along the way helped her become what she is at the, where we see her at the end of season seven. Definitely. What's your number five? My number five is sacrifice. And it kind of plays in with your number five because we saw Sirio right off the bat sacrifice himself, theoretically, to save Arya, yes. which is pretty intense. Um, I just thought that was a really good scene in general, too. Um, starts off with them sort of fighting and he's tricking her, telling her he's going to go left when he goes right. 
and <laughs> and now you are dead, right? And she's dead all like, girl. "Dead girl, yeah, dead. Now you're a dead girl." And she's yep. like, "What the fuck? Like you said right and went left." And he's like, "Yeah." And now you're a dead girl. And she's like, "Only because you lied." He's like, "My tongue lied, but my eyes shouted the truth. You were not seeing." <laughs> I was so. I watched, but watching is not seeing, dead girl. The seeing, the true seeing, that is the heart of swordplay. And this sort of reminded me of um, of playing hockey. One of the lessons I learned playing defense is that you don't necessarily want to focus too much on the puck because they can trick you and move the puck one direction and then their body will go the other direction and they can get around you. So you want to you keep an eye on their the core of their body and that'll tell you wh- what they're really doing. Um, so you play the you play the body, not the puck, basically. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, so that that was kind of a cool little thing that made me think of. It gave me like a hockey flashback for a moment. So that was fun. <laughs> yeah, I always try to keep my eye on the puck. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You want to watch both, really? Um, yeah. This, yeah. So the true seeing is the uh, is the heart of sword play which is a valuable lesson. I think that'll probably help her in the future at some point. We haven't really seen it manifest itself exactly yet but i feel like that's going to be important at some point so that'll be cool to watch for yeah it's, it's brutal as they're interrupted by the lannister troops and Sirio proceeds to knock them down one by one how many troops are there three or four uh, lannister guards besides Marin? three i think it was three and he's just making light work of these guys he's grabbing their capes and using it to <laughs> to spin them around and <laughs> bending over and letting them whack each other with swords. And then he pulls out this <laughs> this hardcore, like, it looks almost like a capoeira move or something um, at the end of the fight when he he drops down and rolls through this guy's legs and sort of flips this guy into the ground and then whacks him on the head, either with his foot or with his sword, and knocks him out. He's, he's one-on-one on one with Marin. And uh, this is like one of the super sad moments in this series for real, right? Yes. Yeah. Be gone now, Arya. Yes. And she says, come with me, run. And what do you remember what he responds to that? I don't remember. The first sword of Bravos oh, does not run. That's right. The, oh, the greatest so swordsman. Brutal. And she just yes. can't bring herself to run away from him and leave him. She loves him so much, you know, and... Marin comes and they start fighting and I'm amazed that his wooden sword lasted this long in the first place uh, against all these castle forged steel blades wielded by the Lannisters um, who <laughs> are known to have good steel and the uh, obviously the Kingsguard. They've got to have great steel. So Marin grabs his blade and cuts the sword in half and <laughs> in Syrio just does not phased he doesn't back down at all it's such a powerful moment i had to use this um for my my podcast post this week asking for feedback for this episode i had to use a picture of right at the end of sirio standing there with the broken sword when he reiterates to aria what do we say to the god of death and she says not "Not today today." and he says go and he didn't say not today no yeah she (laughs) yeah she responds he did not did not say not today that's right um but she runs and she's muttering not today not today as she Mm -hmm. as she's navigating her way through the chaos in the red keep which is um and we hear i think we hear off in the distance as she runs maybe sirio starting to fight marin um but really sad because Sirio is just a monstrously inspirational character who 
is just the coolest in every way, basically. Like, it's like Sirio and Braun. Yeah. For like, like being like ultimate badass cool guys, you know? Yeah. And we didn't have him for many episodes, but he really made an impact. Sirio, yeah. He yeah. made a huge impact. I mean, people are still theorizing about <laughs> yeah. who he could be if he's Jock and Hagar or if whatever, you know. So obviously, right. yeah, this this actor did a wonderful job bringing this uh, this essence of this character to the screen. Can't give him enough credit for that and HBO for casting this guy. And it, yeah, yeah, it's similar, remindful of uh, Benjamin Stark, how people have been speculating forever about what happened to him or the Blackfish before we saw either of them return. Yep. So the last one we haven't seen return is is Sirio. It'd be interesting if he did. Because, you know, we can't believe anything the showrunners say, really. That's right. Although I do feel like uh, he's probably dead, <laughs> sadly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And then the other big sacrifice that we had this episode was Septa Mordain sacrificing herself for Sansa, which is right before the uh, the Sirio scene. Yes. Episode starts with Sirio and Arya practicing, and then it cuts to Sansa and Septa Mordain walking down the hall. And they're talking about something, and Septa Mordain's ears kind of perk up as you can hear sword fighting and screaming in the background. And she tells Sansa to run and bar the door in her room and hide and stay there. And she she stays where she is to deflect or try to distract the Lannister guards long enough for Sansa to get to her room. And it's amazing the timing of this shot. Sansa's running, you know, grabbing her dress, holding it up so she can sort of run down the hallway. And the second that she disappears behind the corner, the Lannister guards, like, pour from all directions and meet Mordain, who we later find out has been beheaded as we see her head on a spike next to Ned's um, in episode 10, I believe. And yes, and super brave to face them all of them like the way she did she was super brave yeah septa bourdain valiantly sacrifices herself to uh save sansa which is really sad especially after the way sansa's been treating her lately and everything um but she you know she does what <laughs> what she's there to do and keep sansa safe essentially yeah i was thinking about that later she's probably been watching over sansa since sansa was born yeah definitely Maester yeah. Lewin, Septa Mordain, mm-hmm. both of them for sure. And neither of them make it out of um, at least uh, <laughs> the, the first couple seasons. I don't think right. Lewin, Lewin doesn't die until season two, right? Theon take, takes over Winterfell, Bran's hiding, Maester Lewin is stabbed in the gut by Dagmar Cleftjaw, I think, and um, Bran mm. ends up finding him after he dragged himself to the heart tree, and they have sort of a heart-to-heart before he has... Um, Osha finish him off, which is really uh, sad, really sad scene. Also, this yeah. show is just full of pain. <laughs> it's awesome. Why do we watch it? Yeah, <laughs> torment, self uh, masochists. I guess. Yes. Anything else you want to say about those guys? If not, we can uh, move right to your number four. Uh, my number four is Sansa. All right. Sansa is left alone in King's Landing. Her father is imprisoned as a traitor. She loses Septa Mordain, as we talked about. Um, The Hound menaces her and takes her to the Lannisters. Seeing this again, you realize how young she was. I think she was only 13 
Is that right? Yeah, about something like that. Yeah. She's surrounded by all these grown master manipulators, Cersei, Varys, Pycelle, and of course, Littlefinger. And I really just hated all of them as they were surrounding her and ganging up on her and manipulating her. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. Yeah. Um, And they basically let her believe that only she can save her father, um, putting this huge weight on her shoulders of keeping her father alive. Yeah, and they're totally and, like, just like you said, manipulating her into this. You got Pycelle saying, "A child born of a traitor's seed is no fit consort for a king," and and they're basically bribing, basically bribing her with queenship, um, right? Wouldn't you agree? Oh, definitely. She's still holding on to that hope that everything will go back to the way it was supposed to be. Right. Who knows what treasons she could hatch in years to come. I won't hatch anything. I promise. (laughs) Yeah, it's so sad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Peter Baelish sort of says, you know, she should be given a chance to prove her loyalty. And so they basically let her believe that only she can save Ned. They talk her into writing that awful letter because she thinks it's the only way to save him. Um, And then later when she is speaking before Joffrey in the throne room, you could see how hard she is trying to play the game with what little she has. Uh, And she just makes such a sad, uh, lonely figure there. She does it, though. You got to give her credit for putting it all on the line and and speaking her mind and standing up to the king and asking for mercy for her father and if he just wasn't such a psycho it would have succeeded you know yes yes i agree yeah essentially like if he didn't flip at the last moment um yeah in next episode yeah ned, ned could have gone up to the wall and t- told john everything you know yeah yeah Man, imagine that imagine we how different things would we have would been. have only needed two seasons then yeah <laughs> <laughs> But I think that knowing what we know now, it's just such rich desserts that this same letter um, that they, you know, manipulated Sansa into writing is used to trap Littlefinger into finally getting what he deserves. And that it's Sansa who, you know, um, passes the sentence on him. Right. I, I just loved knowing that now. And it's so funny too, Littlefinger's there as she writes the letter, encouraging her to do it as her one chance to prove her loyalty. So he knows about it. He tracks it down in Winterfell and his doing that and pitting <sighs> them against each other, Sansa and Arya, yes. is literally what what directly causes his demise. Yes. Um, pretty hardcore so yeah it's really yes. cool seeing the letter again and knowing the significance it plays in uh, in the future yeah um, and it, it that letter right there is is the downfall of one of the most sneaky players of this entire game which is yep. which is crazy um anything else you want to say about uh about sansa i think i got that all right um my number four it's just general badassery. Um, there's a lot of badassery in this episode. Um, yes. And not the least of which is our boy, Sir Barristan, who is unle- who's let go from his position as Lord Commander of, of the Kingsguard and let go from the Kingsguard entirely in an unprecedented dishonor um, by Cersei and Joffrey. Um, he's embarrassed publicly 
um, by Peter Baelish and by Cersei. He, you know, he says, I'm a knight. I shall die a knight as he unclips his white cloak. And Peter Baelish says, a naked knight, apparently, um, which earns the laughs, the jeers of the crowd, including Janice Slint, who uh, we know ends up <laughs> paying with his life for his dickheadedness uh, in the future. <laughs> um, Cersei proceeds to... to Tell Barristan, you know, he, when he says, only death can relieve a king's guard. And she says, yes, but whose death? You know, you were there when the, the mad king died. Robert died. You failed to protect your king, um, which is kind of unfair, as we know. Yes. And he, this is when it gets badass. He, he unsheaths his sword after the naked knight comment. And everybody is like, oh, fuck. This is the guy who, who cut his way through an entire castle to save the Mad King when he was taken prisoner in Duskendale during, um, I can't remember what the event was called, but but he he infiltrates a castle and cuts his way back out to save the, the king all by himself, which is probably the single most badass feat of any Westerosi knight in known history. I can't think of anybody who's done anything that badass. So everybody in this room has to be terrified when he pulls his sword out at this moment and points it at the king's guard. Even now, I could cut through the five of you like carving a cake. Yes. You know, here, boy. <laughs> he calls him boy, which is great, too. Melt it down and add it to the others. Tosses his sword down. I just have wow written in all caps because Barristan is, is the man. He's a great character. Um, so there we have... Some mega badassery by Sir Barristan the Bold, who proceeds to storm out. And I don't remember how much detail we get about his escape on the TV show. I don't think we have much, but it's no. pretty it's pretty cunning in the books. Um, if you guys want to check out the books, send me your email. And as long as you haven't received a free audiobook before from a friend, I can email you the book, the first book of Game of Thrones of Song of Ice and Fire. So. Um, during the long night, this long break in between seasons, you know, you might as well read the books because the show's ahead of the books anyway at this point. So you're not going to you're not going to lose out on anything or spoil yourself. You're just going to enrich the uh, the story. I always like to say that the uh, the TV show is like looking at it through a telescope at a beautiful nebula in outer space and like <laughs> all the crazy colors and just fantastical nature of this miracle of, of space. And then the, the books are like zooming out in the telescope and seeing the entire starscape and seeing everything. There's just so much more that happens in the books. So I really, really recommend um, taking me up on this offer and getting your free audiobook, or even just buying the books if you prefer to read and getting in on this, this epic tale. Cause it's the scale is just so much, so much more monstrous in the books. It's amazing. Um, yeah. So my next examples of badassery are Danny and Drogo. Danny stops the rape of Miri Mazdur from occurring. And I, I want to add also that she looks particularly gorgeous in this scene, um, even though she's all covered in dirt and grime, <laughs> uh, which is funny. But uh, someone tells her, you can't, oh, I think it's Jora, you, you can't claim them, claim them all, Khaleesi. And she says, I can and I will. Naturally, drama ensues because these guys are horny after the battle and they want their their slave women, essentially. 
Yeah. So she's taken to Drogo where she explains her position and you can tell he's not like stoked about it right off the bat. Mago, uh, his blood rider is pissed and Drogo is not happy. And uh, so they're talking about it and and Khaleesi says, you know, if your men shall mount them, let them take them for their wives, right? Yes. Which is reasonable. Uh, and Mago responds, or is it Mago? It might be one of the other um, blood riders there, but he says, does the horse mate with the lamb? You know, like like saying that's a ridiculous notion. And this is Danny's most badass moment yet, where she just looks fierce as fuck. And she says, the dragon feeds on horse and lamb alike. And I just read, boom, like that is a yep. mic drop and it cuts to the side of Drogo's face as he sort of processes this. And he's an interesting guy with like freckles along his eyes and like this big scar going across his, his like through his eyebrow, which is a real scar that Momoa has. Yes. But it's just really like interesting. I, I, thought, I keep thinking that the casting is so good on this show. And this is another example. Drogo is just perfect. I can't imagine anybody else as Drogo. I can't either. Um, <laughs> definitely not. So he Drogo's down. You know, he's he's like, wow. It's like she is. She's, you know, she's stepping up. And uh, in response, Mago is like, you're a foreigner. You don't command me. And she's like, I'm Khaleesi. I do command you. And Drogo finally is says something he speaks up see how fierce she grows you know and he's just loving it um <laughs> that's my son inside of her the stallion that will mount the world filling her with his fire Mago. he's so impressed with her he is he he's yeah. just so impressed um it's it's really a cool dynamic that we're seeing his the pleasure he had he he gets from watching her grow and and gain the strength that he uh, is, you know, uh, the strength of Drogo, essentially, um, to match him, not his strength, but matching his strength, which yep. is wild. Um, and Mago, find somewhere else to stick your cock. And Mago, <laughs> Mago spits. And I'm like, oh, shit, it's on. A call who takes orders from a foreign whore is no call. Because, we you know, calls are based on strength if he's being bossed around or by what these people perceive as some um, a foreign whore, not as an equal to the call, which she is in this relationship at this point. They take him as weak, which he is not, and he is not amused. So now we get Drogo being a badass as he stands up and meets Mago's Eric on his chest and pushes through it in a gesture of intimidation like your fucking Eric is nothing. <laughs> and uh, he starts... Mago starts swinging the Eric at him and he's Drogo's looking like Joe Frazier here, just bobbing and weaving and ducking. <laughs> and he, he pulls his daggers out while monologuing and drops the daggers. I will not have your body burned. I will not give you that honor. The beetles will feed on your eyes. The worms will crawl through your lungs. The rain will fall on your rotting skin until nothing is left of you but bones. And uh, Danny is looking terrified as they start to clash again. And uh, Mago shouts, first you have to kill me. And <laughs> as he grabs the Eric and stops a blow, he says, I already have and whoosh, twists it, cuts his throat and immediately grabs him by the head and reaches into his throat and rips his throat, or rips his tongue out, which is super, super gangster. Like, <laughs> it looks like he's done that a few times because you don't just make that up on the spot. You know, yeah. <laughs> this is a common practice for Gal Drogo. I'm surprised he doesn't have a tongue necklace like Daryl's ear necklace in The Walking Dead. 
right? Yeah, I, I think this is the most badass thing we've seen up until this point. Yeah, in terms yeah. of combat. Just raw fierceness. Yeah, I would have to agree. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, till this point, this is the most uh, most vicious fight. And yeah, just craziness we've seen for sure. Um, my next example of badassery is Arya, as we talked about, you know, she's navigating through the chaos and screams and not today, not today. And she finds needle in her luggage. And as the stable boy tries to capture her, she just pokes it right through him. And yes. that blade is so thin. It's like you can't already, you can hardly even tell where the stab wound is. I bet <laughs> leaves like virtually no trace. Just follow the blood because it's not like a big gaping wound. It's just the tiniest little puncture. It's crazy. Yep. And she's unfazed, escapes. Um, our next badassery comes from Tyrion as he and Bronn are navigating their way through the mountainous terrain of the Vale, heading back south. And they just have some fun conversation here, too. What do you want, Bronn? Gold? Women? Gold and women? <laughs> Stick with me and I'll have them all. For as long as I'm around and not a moment longer. Um, and... He, and they're talking and he's like, I'm not your toady. You know, I'm not your friend. And uh, I love Tyrion's response here, though. I would treasure your friendship. I'm mainly interested in your facility of murder. <laughs> <laughs> if the day ever comes when you're tempted to sell me out, remember this. Whatever their price, I'll beat it. I love living. You know, I like living. <laughs> and so the, the mountain clans or the hill tribes enclose as Tyrion sleeps and Bronn wakes him up and draws his sword and uh, Shagger emerges from the, the mist, uh, looking mega badass with the... <laughs> Shagger's badass, too. He should make the badassery uh, chart yes. here. <laughs> Shagger, son of Dolph of the Stone Crows. How would you like to die, Tyrion, son of Tywin? <laughs> and he has the, the most badass line ever. <laughs> In my own bed, at age 80, with a belly full of wine and a girl's mouth around my cock... <laughs> Which is hilarious. Um, and you know, immediately he wins over the mountain tribes with that line. They all start yep. laughing. And he's got leverage now since they like him. He's like, no, Bronn doesn't die either. You know, like, we're cool. Just lead us through and we'll give you tons of gold and tons of weapons. And we'll, you know, you'll end up with a veil. So I thought that Tyrion is just extremely badass in this situation, handles it expertly. Expertly, We get a, like sort of a, our first glimpse of uh, the, the diplomacy capabilities of Tyrion here, and we know he ends up in a role of diplomacy working for Khaleesi later on. Um, the, the, the hand of the queen, right? So he's just, step by step, Tyrion is just, you know, he's improving, and we're learning more and more about his capabilities throughout the entire series, little bit here more as we see him handle the the hand position in season two um it's just like he's made to be this role uh, that he ends up being for danny and hopefully it ends up working out for the better of everybody in the end i yes. mean he's he may have stumbled a little bit not being able to accurately predict euron but that's because he didn't even know euron was a factor um essentially so it'll be interesting to see how Tyrion ends up playing out we get a really good um insight here at least i'm brave enough to face my enemies what do the hill tribes do cower as the knights of the Vale uh, storm past 
Um, that was pretty ballsy. I don't know if that was necessarily the smartest thing to do, but it, it, he did point out how brave and badass he was being, which is cool. Yeah. He's super smart here. He, he, we just start to see what Tyrion is capable of, how he can figure out the best way to get him out of any situation that he gets himself into. Definitely. Yeah. He's super slick. Um, great with words, you know, he's, Jamie's his brother Jamie, you know, his he has a sword and Tyrion has his mind and uh he definitely he uses it as expertly as Jamie does. Two masters of their own disciplines, which is pretty yes. radical to see. Um the next moment of badassery comes from uh, our boy, the future king in the north, Rob Stark, as he uh as he meets with the great John and his bannermen at the table in, in Winterfell and the great John wants Rob to have him lead the Vanguard. And he's already uh, given this honor to, um, Robert Glover, Glover, I believe one of the Glovers. Yes. And, and the great John's I'll not sit here and swallow insults from a boy. So green, he pisses grass (laughs) and he reaches for his dagger and gray wind just launches over the table and, tackles him and rips two of his fucking fingers off (laughs) right and and the great john is like screaming essentially like oh you know doing that yeah that probably hurts yeah (laughs) and rob has the most badass line like ever here my father taught me it was death to bear steel against one's liege lord doubtless the great john only meant to cut my meat for me (laughs) <laughs> and everybody's just silent and great john stands up and boots the chair he was sitting in and it slides across the room you meet and he sort of takes a moment to calm down and look around him and realize the gravity of the situation and he he changes course back into submission is bloody tough ah, 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 and starts laughing and it's just He's got like, the best laugh right yeah it's just the best guffaw a beginning of a beautiful alliance between rob and uh, the great john here which i'm a big fan of uh, yeah I, I love the great john and <laughs> this scene is just so so great so cool to see it happening again um that pretty much wraps up my number four well, how about your uh, number three unless there's anything else you want to say about that uh my number three is pretty similar it was mostly Tyrion. great let's hear it what do you got so Tyrion. um first we have the Bronn and Tyrion show which i just is one of my favorite things about this show same here they're so good together um and we got to enjoy it for so long And um, I think the, like you said, the part he says about if you're ever tempted to sell me out, I think we might see that come up at some point in the next season. Yeah, Yeah. we we haven't seen that that saying you're going left, but going right thing. We haven't seen that necessarily come up with Arya yet, but we we I think we will see this uh, come up too between Braun and Tyrion if anyone ever tries to double cross me remember I'll pay more <laughs> I would yes. not be surprised to see Braun come back to Tyrion with some important information or something um, I really hope that happens because I want Braun to get his castle I don't think anybody is questioning that everybody knows I want Braun to get his castle right <laughs> continue yes. Lady Wendy he needs a good castle um the other thing that uh, well, I thought was important was when Tyrion finally makes his way to Tywin and he sits down with, uh, you know, all of Tywin's advisors and his uncle Lannister 
and they're actually starting to listen to what Tyrion has to say for once. And I think even Tywin, we know he doesn't like uh, Tyrion, but he had a grudging respect for Tyrion for being able to make his way out of this situation where he surely should have died. He does. Yeah, I think he does sort of recognize Tyrion's capability in this moment. And um, it's also funny, um, the, the, the one of the first things he says to Tywin, or to Tywin says to uh, Tyrion here, rumors of your demise were unfounded. Sorry to disappoint you, Tywin, or Tyrion responds, but it sort of um, made me laugh because that's a a play on that famous Mark Twain thing, right? Rumors of my great of my death have been greatly exaggerated, something like that. But Tywin, Twain, they're like almost the same word, so I thought it was kind of a cool little nod there. Yeah. Uh, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> and uh, sorry, go ahead. Wendy. And when Tywin first sees that Tyrion's alive, he just doesn't, you know, there's not one ounce of excitement that he's showing. He just doesn't miss a beat. <laughs> right. Yeah. He, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't even, it's not, he's not shocked. He's not excited. He's not happy. He's not mad. He's just Tywin, like per- yes. poker face constantly. Um, yeah. Really great scene there. I love it too. He's like, you know, he's here. He doesn't like Tyrion, right? And Tyrion's showing up like, yes. Uh, and now we owe these people three thousand helms and swords and gorges <laughs> yeah. and all this stuff, <laughs> yeah. which is pretty hilarious. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I and it was... I also thought that um, Tywin immediately wants to diminish the threat that Rob poses. Um, right. Now, whether that was just for his advisor's sake or if he really didn't think Rob stood a chance. Tyrion seems to be the more realistic one. He, you know, he says to Tywin, the boy does have a certain belligerence. You'd like him. Right. That was a great line. I love that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And Tywin just totally underestimates Rob right off the bat. Definitely. So that was my number three. Oh, right. Yeah. um, It's a great, great scene. I also liked how... um, how the mountain men say, you know, until we hold the steel that Tyrion pledged us, the little lion's life is ours. Yes. Which is, uh, I like how they called him the little lion. It sort of reminded me of a um, a character mentioned in the in the books and in the Duncan Egg novellas, um, which I've talked about to some degree on Still Smug. So I just wanted to mention that for any uh, Still Smug listeners out there, the little lion reference. Um, which, if you guys are interested in, I highly recommend the uh, the Duncan Egg novellas. You can read them in the the book called A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, which I can send you that for free if you want. If you don't want a Game of Thrones, just uh, let me send you something for free. Come on, send me your email. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need a credit card to download it either. No strings attached. Um, all right, so my number three is War is Brewing. Uh, the gravity of the moment when Lewin is talking with Rob at Winterfell and they tells him that Ned's been captured and and Rob tells him to call the banners, you know, call the banners. I was just like, holy shit, like shit is getting real at this point, um, especially knowing what happens. It's just a really uh, intense moment there when yeah, he decides he, to go all in, essentially. He doesn't waver. He doesn't waver at all. Mm-mm. Rob reads the Raven, you know, treason. Um, and then Lewin points out, it's your sister's hand, but the queen's words. 
And that that's a line that I had referenced in our coverage of season seven when Arya ends up finding the letter and reading Sansa's writing, but she doesn't have Lewin to guide her at the, that moment. So she's, all she sees is Sansa betraying the Starks. Right. When in fact she was being, you know, she was under duress. She was told to write this. Lewin points it out immediately. You know, it's your sister's hands, but the queen's words. Rob mentions the letter Sansa wrote to Kat, and she says, you mean Cersei's letter. So the adults here know that it's it's Cersei's doing, not Sansa's doing. But it was nerve-wracking in season seven that Arya may have drastically overreacted because of um, having the wrong information base here and not necessarily understanding that um, Sansa was didn't have any choice. You know, there was really nothing she could have done. So... The banners are called, they meet, they march south in the middle of the night to avoid being detected by Lannister scouts, which is pretty badass. And then we see that Tywin's army is already in the field as well, which is super hardcore. Mm -hmm. Um, Just the, (laughs) this whole occurrence here is, it's insane. Um, I liked how also um, Rob's strategy to, uh, to release the Lannister spy who's been counting their people. Um, J- Great John is super pissed about it at first, too. He doesn't understand Rob's plot here, that he's misleading them, making them think that more troops are coming in one direction than really are. He basically sacrifices 2,000 men to um, send his troops in secret to the Whispering Wood where he ends up taking Jamie Lannister captive. So it's a pretty, um, pretty hardcore and somber strategic military move here on Rob's part um, to do what he does. And it's, I imagine it would weigh on him heavily. I can, I can't even imagine having to sacrifice that many of my own people. Um, it's very badass, hor- horrible and super. <laughs> yeah. Badass yeah. for sure. He comes up with that right on the fly too. Yeah. Like, really? No hesitation. You know? Yeah. He, it's pretty impressive his, how quickly that strategy pops into his mind there. He's confronted with a spy and Im- releases him immediately, um, telling the, telling his mother and the great John that, you know, Ned recognized, you know, he, mercy when it was available. Like, and he also, you know, he, he, he liked mercy when it could be given and he also liked honor when he could, when he could have it essentially. And I think that it was, you know, pretty slick and, honorable and merciful move on his part here. Maybe not necessarily honorable <laughs> um, right. considering the treachery involved, but you know, you know, or, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, just the, the, the fomentation and uh, execution of the, the gears of war being put into place here um, in this episode is pretty, pretty intense. So that's my number three. How about your number two? Number two is the White Walkers and the Whites. Dude, um, that's the same as me. Mine, <laughs> except except mine says Whites and White Walkers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. We'll do it together. All right, so we'll collabo on this. That's right. Um, so rewatching this early episode, I had forgotten how much lore there is in this episode, and how many hints we get about uh, the White Walkers and the Whites so early on. Yeah. Um, first, when the two rangers are found dead, uh, Jafar and Othor, Sam says that the bodies do not smell like they've been rotting. 
that's your first little hint. Right. So what's up with that? Um, do you think they were just recently killed or do you think that they're being preserved by ice magic or what? That's a good question. I don't know because previously the whites are not animated until a white walker animates them. Right. And my other confusion here is that they were, you know, it's it's snowy north of the wall. So Very. <laughs> So uh, at, at this point already too, like it's always, it's like the land of always winter up there essentially. Right. So yes, if it's frozen, I wouldn't necessarily expect the bodies to be rotting and yes. smelling. So I was kind of confused at the significance that this played because I wouldn't expect them to be, to have been rotted at this point. Um, but you know, who knows, maybe it's not constantly frozen there. Maybe there's thaws and whatnot at this stage of the, the, um, weather cycle in the middle of summer. Maybe it's not yeah, always frozen think, up there. I don't think they were found too far away. Right. Yeah. They were yeah. Yeah, real close near the, uh, yeah. the, the Weirwood um, thing up there, the Godswood, which is yep. like what a league or a couple of leagues North of the wall. So yeah, pretty right. close for sure. Then one of the dead rangers reanimates as a white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is our first real good look uh, at, at a white since the very first cold opening. Tis true. Um, and they're fast. That's yeah. my first thing that I noticed. Fast, and he is acting with intelligence as well, I noticed. Um, sort of Walking Dead season one style. Um <laughs> You know, where he enters the Lord Commander's chambers, but he closed all the doors behind him. And then John came in and he closed the door behind John before he attacked. So he's yeah. operating with some level of intelligence here. And also he's he's specifically targeted the Lord Commander's chambers. So it seems like it's a mixture of latent intelligence that the previous human had before death combined with the motives of the... The Night King, essentially, that he would, want, he would want to take out Lord Commander Mormont to send the Night's Watch into disarray. But I think it's interesting that it seems to be a combination of the knowledge of both, which is pretty cool. And then John stabs him in the chest, but yeah. it has no impact. I mean, he just grabs it right out and keeps going. Yeah, and he rips it out real fast, too. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're fast. And he stabbed him in the gut a couple times, too, with what looked yeah. like... Uh, like a sigh, like like Raphael used <laughs> in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know that? Or did you yes. notice that? That was pretty cool. And so what we find out is that fire is what stops the whites. Yeah. As John grabs a lantern and that's what finally stops them. Yeah, it's cool too. Um, when the body was first brought back to Castle Black and Sam points out that there's no smell. The first thing, the only thing John says to instinctively, right off the bat, we should burn them, which yep. I thought was telling that he like sort of is just like intuitively connected to what needs to happen at this point. Um, pretty cool. Yep. Um, and then the other thing that we find out about the White Walkers and the Whites is Osha is talking to Bran about what's beyond the wall. I love Osha. Yeah, me too. Um, and Osha remarks that there are giants beyond the wall and worse than giants. And Osha tells Bran that Rob's army is going in the wrong direction, that they should be going north. Right. Yeah. And which this is... is really early. And I kind of forgot all about that part of it. 
Yeah, she definitely knows what's up. They're going the wrong direction. They should be marching north, not south. Yes. Cold, cold winds are rising, which is hardcore. What did and, you have? Uh, we got another couple of little tidbits, too, from Sam. Um, after we come back and they're burning the uh, the whites, um, Sam is talking about how, you know, they were touched by white walkers. That's why their eyes turned blue. Only burning them will stop them. And he goes on to say that the white walkers sleep under the ice for generations. And when they wake up, dun, dun, dun. We, don't really, <laughs> yeah, we don't really know what happens when they wake up. But we know, I mean, <laughs> but uh, they don't. <laughs> Pretty intense. Um, I love the like the looming threat of the White Walkers and the Whites and everything. It's just yeah, so crazy that we have all this stuff going on in King's Landing, um, overshadowed by <laughs> this monstrous dead threat looming in the north. <laughs> which and this is, really is the cool. real sto- the real threat. Yeah, the re- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh man, I wonder if Littlefinger was an agent of the White Walkers the whole time, just trying to divide the <laughs> kingdoms so they could come down and conquer during all the chaos. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did a good job. Yeah, um, I love Osha too. She's really cool. Oh, I love Osha. Um, actually, in that same scene, right before Rickon goes to the Godswood, um, it's when. Rob leaves in the middle of the night and uh, it's particularly sad sort of moment as well, knowing that they'll never see each other again. We get the last goodbye of Rickon or of of, um, Rob and, and Bran. Yes. Uh, That's the last time Rob sees any of his siblings. Right. Wow. Last time he sees Winterfell. Yeah, it sucks. And, and uh, we get a couple little cool tidbits of info from Osha as well who teaches Bran how to listen to the responses of the old gods as uh, the rustling in the leaves and um, the wind. And Bran says, you know, it's only the wind. And she replies, who do you think sends the wind? And it's, I thought it was particularly cool that um, she tells him to listen and it, it. The camera zooms in on some red weirwood leaves kind of fluttering in the wind. There's a big theory in the books that every time you hear like rustling of leaves, it's Bran, essentially, with his Weirwood connection, spying or listening or trying to communicate. So <laughs> I, it's like a popular fan theory, right? So I thought it was telling at this moment when they're talking about this that it zooms in on the leaves. Um, I think it was like a subtle nod to this theory and that maybe even Bran was watching over himself at this moment, <laughs> which is kind of cool. Uh, we get to see naked Hodor. <laughs> Which, he's got giant's blood man that's one of my notes um osha seemed particularly interested in naked hodor <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a prosthetic not to shatter anybody's yeah. dreams here but i heard that which is funny um, um and the only other part about those scenes uh was sam starting to figure out that sam knows a lot right and john looks at him and says how do you know that and he says i read it in a book <laughs> yeah an old book in maester Eamon's chamber yes right? yeah and i i think um this is the beginning of a glimpse into sam's usefulness definitely and I, I don't think we've fully seen what sam can do yet I don't either. And the combination of Sam and Bran is just going to be unstoppable. Yes. <laughs> We're in a position where it could happen now, where where Sam and and Bran and Tyrion could all join forces for the strategic, um, all-knowing, 
trifecta of yeah. of knowledge and strategy. Uh, that imagine yeah. how what they would be capable of in in working together. <laughs> if they can't save the world, no one can. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> with with yeah. their intelligence and capability, and you know the military capabilities of John and Braun and crew and all everybody. Tormund and the Hound, and yeah, they'd be unstoppable. Um, so hopefully that's exactly what we see happen. Anything else uh, for your number two? Nothing else for my number two. How about you? Uh, I think that pretty much covers it pretty well. How about your number one, Wendy? All right. My number one is Eddard Stark. All right. Um, my boy. We don't, we don't see... Yeah. <laughs> we don't see Ned much in this episode. I read that originally he wasn't going to appear in the episode at all, but the network insisted on him being there. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but even though he doesn't appear that much, I feel like the entire episode is centered on um, how his imprisonment catalysts everybody else how how everybody's moving around the vacuum that his imprisonment has created that's so funny because my number one is shit hits the fan in general as people <laughs> find out about ned yeah yeah and everybody's responding to that we see glimpses of all six star kids uh and caitlin and they're all reacting to what's happening with with ned yeah, I mean, Rob calls the banners. Sansa yep. fights back in her own way. Arya has to book it. I don't know if she really knows in detail yet what has happened. Cat um, finds out and it can't believe that Lysa held the information back from her um, all day. They sent me the, the raven, not you. Um, Kat, oh, like, Liza. Like, you <laughs> fuck. Like, what the oh. hell is wrong with you? My, you know, her, my husband is rotting in a jail cell, and you're just like, got your titty out, feeding a 10 year old. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you? You know? <laughs> like, like, what? Yeah. What is going on? That kid is so creepy. <laughs> Does family mean anything to you? And she looks over at sweet Robin, sweet, sweet Robin. Oh, sweet Robin. Family is everything to me. <laughs> counsel your child on patience yeah oh my god <laughs> uh and uh rickon rickon and um bran are left alone in winterfell bran is the lord of winterfell this little Jesus. kid who's recovering from being paralyzed right and we get this this important line from from rob when when um bran tells him he wants to go with him and yep. he says, no, like, there must always be a Stark in Winterfell. Until I return, that will be you. Yep. Um, which is obviously a pretty important concept we, that comes back a couple times. You know, there always mm -hmm. needs to be a Stark in Winterfell. And for a while, uh, sadly, we don't, there is no Stark in Winterfell. So this line kind of foreshadows that um, eventuality as well. Uh, there must always be a Stark in Winterfell. Yeah. So, like, what happens when there is no Stark in Winterfell? And uh, we get to experience that uh, painfully. And it's not good when <laughs> no, there's not, not a Stark good. in Winterfell. Winterfell burns. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's horrible, man. Super horrible. And uh, the last line uh, for that is Bran... Uh, Bran tells Rickon that Rob's going to free father and come back with mother. Right. And Rickon says, no, he won't. Right. So Rickon <laughs> seems to have some sort of green sight or something here as well. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, he could just be a pessimist, but I feel like there's something <laughs> going on. Uh, we, I mean, this isn't the only time that we've had this happen either. Something with Rickon being connected to a larger information base. We have this occurrence, and then we have when when Bran has the dream of his father and wakes up and feels like his father, something is going is wrong with, with Ned. And Maester Lewin then gets the, the raven and learns that Let Ned has been beheaded. But they go down into the crypt where he says, where he thinks he saw his father in his dream. And Rickon is already down there waiting for father, um, which is <laughs> pretty, pretty intense. Uh, yeah. It's really sad, but it's also... It is, like, it is sad. You know, yeah, it's really, really sad, but also just interesting in its own way that these that they know what's going on. Um, and Rick, Rickon is not looking well. No. <laughs> no, he, he is all over the place. He's just lurking outside. He didn't even come in to say bye to Rob. He was just lurking. Like He's a weirdo, man. <laughs> did you know, <laughs> you know, did you know that it was the... Uh, original actor who played Rick on the whole time. Oh yeah. Yeah. I could recognize I guess I didn't I realize him. that I had thought it, it had been recast, right? Many other characters great. were recast. Marcella yeah. was recast. Tommen was recast. Um, yeah. Many other child actors have been recast. Aria was recast. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's cool that Rick on that all the Starks were the same throughout the whole series. Yeah. It's happy about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, shit definitely hits the fan. John, when he finds out about Ned, uh, it's a pretty, pretty, pretty intense scene. A letter arrives from King's Landing. Mormont calls him into his chambers, has him grab a, a horn, a thing of ale, and pour. Yep. Tells him to pour himself a cup, and like you know, some there's gonna be bad news when that happens. Dark wings, mm-hmm. dark words, right? Yep. <laughs> so uh, he tells John not to do anything stupid. And John knows that, like, the fix is in. Obviously, Ned didn't betray Robert. He knows better than that. Right. Um, he's like Rick James. You know, he's got a little bit more sense than that. And uh, <laughs> so John goes to the mess hall and immediately gets taunted by Sir Alistair, who's just the biggest oh, douche around. He is. Right? He He's the biggest douche at the wall until Janice Slint shows up. I can't um, believe we had Rast. to put up with him for so yeah. long, too. Yeah, Rast <laughs> is up there, too, actually, and that the, yeah. the guy who uh, kills Mormont. Um, but yeah, you know, Alistair's being a total dick, and John's not having it. He tries to stab him, which is so, <laughs> so funny, man. Yeah. Pretty great moment, and Mormont's like, I told you not to do anything stupid. Damn it. <laughs> Sentence, do you know you're... you're Isolated to to quarters. Um, I like how eventually, though, he does send Sir Alistair, Alistair away as like a sort of a favor to John because nobody likes Alistair. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, he's awful. Anything else you want to say about people finding out about Ned and the re- the different ways they react and everything like that? Anything else? I think I think that's everything for me. Yeah, pretty much covers it for me, too. Um Rob calls the banners. John tries to kill a guy. Sansa writes a, a treasonous letter. <laughs> Arya just books it. Yeah, Kat spazzes, Ar- like totally spazzes. Um, as you know, as mad as she was at Ned for having that bastard, she loves him a lot. You know, 
Yeah. They were originally she was supposed to be with her his brother Brandon and mm-hmm. they didn't love each other at first. It was an arranged marriage, but they really did seem to f- eventually build a special bond um which is it's cool to see. Like it's interesting how love can develop in different ways, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think if she hadn't have loved him, she wouldn't have cared that much about John. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. um it's a similar a sort of parallel with Daenerys and Drogo too. Like it was an arranged marriage. Um, I mean, Drogo played a part in arranging it, obviously, but Danny had no part of it. And but now they yep. they love the fuck out of each other. Like my sun and stars, moon of my life. They yes. poetically love each other. <laughs> like you know, that's like serious yeah. stuff right there. Um, <laughs> pretty wild. Any other um, just general notes from the episode you want to talk about? Let's see. This is the first episode ever written by George R. R. Martin. Really? Wow. Yep. That's so cool. Yep. Georgie. <laughs> Love that um, guy. The only other notes I had was um, about John. So we know John now is a Targaryen. He, Danny really? is fireproof, but. John burns his hand on the lantern right, and totally Viserys was burned it. by molten gold. Right. So Danny do you is think, special. Right. We, so we can assume that this is just a gift for Danny and not necessarily a Targ trait. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very bizarre. Very, very I bizarre. I have one note on Joffrey. We don't see much of him. But I just love with uh, the first scene and in the throne room and he has the crown on and he's just lounging on the throne with one leg askew. Doesn't give just, a fuck. <laughs> just a picture of arrogance with yeah. that Joffrey sneer. Yeah. And Jack Leeson is just so good. Nobody could be Joffrey but Jack Leeson. I know. Again, this show just completely nailing the casting. I Especially can't. with all these kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are the odds? Uh, they really, like, lucked out with uh, <laughs> some really good child acting and casting here. Um, and interestingly, too, um, since we're talking about Joffrey, Sansa comes up and pleads for for him to have mercy on Ned. And his his, his response was interesting here. He says, um, you know, he, he said that I wasn't king. Why did he say that? Um, <laughs> Which is pretty interesting to me that Joffrey is legitimately clueless that he's uh, an incest bastard, basically. Um, although he must come to learn, he does come to learn as Stannis projects it to the entire Seven Kingdoms with his claim of um, to the throne himself based on the fact that Joffrey's a bastard. So Joffrey starts doing something about it um, and having people track down all of Robert's bastards in season two to execute them, correct? Yes, and he questions his mother about it as well. Right, right. Yeah, yeah which is pretty uh, pretty insane. So yeah, I just so, thought it was interesting how like clueless and innocent in that way Joffrey was at this particular moment. Yeah, and he seems insecure in his role. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. As even even feeling as like entitled and cocky as he does, he mm-hmm. still projects insecurity um, in a number of ways. It perfectly uh, described Wendy as as Tywin says. You know, any man who says that he is king is no true king, and that's like 
you know, perfectly describes Joffrey, completely insecure with his position. And uh, yeah, just in general. I am the king. <laughs> I am the king. <laughs> Imp slap. <laughs> oh, I love it. I also yes. thought it was cool. I have um, written in my notes that as Danny's watching them sack the city of, Lam- of the Lamb Men, they're uh, pulling down the statues to take back to Vyas Dothrak, which we uh, which we heard Khal Drogo mention at, in the last episode you know, that they'll take take the statues of the Iron Men, bring them back to Vyas Dothrak, and we uh, we see various um, spoils of war at our different times visiting Vyas Dothrak in the series. Um, so it's pretty cool that we see them sort of doing that, what they talk about. And there's, in, in, it's described in more detail in the books. There's all sorts of relics from various civilizations that have been sacked by the Dothraki, sculptures of all different kinds and treasures of, of various cultures, all gathered together at Vice Dothrak. It's like a, it's just an interesting archaeological thing that I've never really heard of um, occurring before. Like this particular um, activity. I can only imagine archaeologists like 2,000 years from now in Westeros or Essos uncovering Vice Dothrak and just being perplexed at the at the uparts, all of these artifacts from that are out of place uh, from all over Essos, all gathered in this one location, um, which is just kind of a unique sort of trope or uh, thing that the Dothraki do. Pretty cool. Yeah, um, like a modern day Smithsonian. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> Any other notes you got? Uh, twice in this episode, the wolves save someone. Um, Ghost saves uh, Mormont. Mormont and right. John. And right. Grey Wind saves Rob. Yeah, good, I thought that was catch. interesting. Yeah. yeah, you get a lot of direwolf action in the early seasons. Yeah. Um, not so yeah, much I mean, later on, sadly. I know. I mean, if, I there's, if there's one, like, like downfall of the show um which is just sad and based on money basically uh it's that they did they couldn't afford to have the dire wolves play a larger role uh which would be would have been really cool yeah i hope we i hope we see them in eight yeah we will i'm confident yeah. i feel like we're gonna get some more nymeria and ghost yeah i'd um, love to see those two together wouldn't that be neat oh together wow that'd yeah. be radical <laughs> That'd be so cool. Um, yep. So another interesting thing I liked from this episode was um, Varys sneaking in disguise to go meet Ned, which is pretty uh, interesting. The conversation that they had, you know, Ned says, you watched my men being slaughtered and did nothing. And Varys replies, um, and would again. I was unarmed, unarmored, and surrounded by Lannister swords. When you look at me, do you see a hero? And this reminded me of the conversation that Ned had with Jamie just a couple episodes ago in the throne room that, you know, it was in this room where where Rickard and Brandon were killed by the Mad King and 500 people were standing there and in silence and doing nothing. And Jamie was in the same position as Varys, essentially, where, you know, like he, he did nothing and would again. Right. He'd do the same thing again. They're surrounded by... By people, I just thought it was a cool parallel between um, Varys and Jamie here, and the way that Ned is confronting them about things that they have or haven't done, and their responses. Um, it's just a you know, it's a 
it's a, a more broad statement on human nature, really. Um, yeah. And, and the way people react and how they won't necessarily speak up and do what's right based on external pressures, um, you know, sort of Nuremberg defense type behavior. Um, I also thought it was, it was great. Various totally called out Ned on being an idiot. Um, what madness yeah. led you to tell the queen the truth? <laughs> you know, madness, the madness of mercy that she might save the children, which plays in again to what I keep talking about with Ned's psychology is that he's obsessed with children. You know, every time he sees Catelyn, the first thing he says is, how are the children? Um, his whole life is focused around protecting John, protecting his children, keeping children safe, not letting the uh, the sins of the fathers being taken out on the children um, in terms of Danny um, being hunted down by Robert or, you know, he obviously feels a great injustice as uh, the Targaryen children were butchered by the mountain during the king, the sack of King's Landing. Ned is just all about kids. <laughs> so, yeah. of course, uh, this is the reason why he why he made this stupid move. I said last week he could have maintained his honor and uh, just been smarter about it and taken her into custody immediately. Yep. Um, but I guess he was just thinking about the children, which is typical Ned, man. Typical, <laughs> typical Ned. And I think it's telling that at the end of season seven, Ferris is still alive. Yeah, and Ned Jamie is not. Jamie is still alive. <laughs> They're survivors. Right. <clears throat> they really are. Um, yeah, just... and, and none of Jamie's children are alive. Yeah. But he's alive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that, fucked up. That, yeah. Oh, what a horrible fate outliving your children. It's just the worst idea. Um, ugh. And um, yeah. <laughs> Ned interestingly learns that Cat has lost Tyrion, um, and it was the wrong brother anyway. Really, mm -hmm. you know, Cersei's not going to do anything to protect Tyrion. She would do something to protect Jaime if it came down to it. But um, so we get another insight into Varys's character here when Ned asks him, "Tell me something, Varys. Who do you really serve?" And true to form, he tells him, "The realm, my lord." someone must um which is just various is like the most consistent character throughout yeah. the entire series with what he says he's uh who he says he's serving so he's, it's really it's interesting. such a great line and i don't think varus ever lies really yeah i don't yeah that's a good point too um i can't think of any time where he has actually lied to anybody right um yeah good point really good point Varys is a very f just fascinating character, um, and there may or may not be more to him um, <laughs> than meets the eye. His there could be another reason besides being a eunuch that he's bald, maybe hiding some type of silver hair. <laughs> People speculate he could be a black fire. Nice. Would, would, have you heard that theory before? I haven't heard that one. Oh yeah, the. Uh, the reason that that uh, Varys is working with Illyrio Mopatis to try to bring the Targaryens back into power, people speculate that Varys and Illyrio themselves are descendants of the Blackfire offshoot of the Targaryen family. And there's there are clues to this in the writing of the books themselves um, without giving away anything. Um, it's just an interesting theory that I think there may be some merit to. 
So it would be really interesting if we learned um, Varys has a more of a interesting past than we previously knew. But that would be awesome. Um, King Aegon the Fifth, the Aegon the Just, Aegon the un- Unlikely was he's the egg egg from the Duncan egg stories and he was described as being bald as an egg and uh interestingly various is also described as being bald as an egg so that could be a little hint there as well uh what else you got any other interesting notes I think I am done with my notes all right let's see I had Hodor naked that was a big one <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was big yeah I think yeah. That, that pretty much covers that was big pun intended <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that uh, that pretty much covers my notes too. All right, let's take a little break, and uh, there'll be more to come in a couple seconds. So stay with us, folks. And we're back with news about Game of Thrones. Our first item comes to us by Screen Rant. Will the Iron Bank win the Game of Thrones? As HBO's Game of Thrones battles its way towards its final season, there's an unlikely contender for the Iron Throne lurking in the shadows. Forget Cersei Lannister, Danny and her dragons, or even the threat of White Walkers. According to one of the show's stars, the Iron Bank will be the ultimate winner of the Ice and Fire epic. For the past seven seasons, we have seen many valiant contenders fall in the War of Five Kings, and while Rob, Joffrey, and Stannis all had their times at the top, they were outsmarted by those around him around them. Everyone already knows the Iron Bank is one step ahead, so why wouldn't the shadowy organization of Penny Pinchers be the only ones left alive as the credits roll? <laughs> Speaking to Metro, actor Mark Gaddis, who was, um, I think he played the Te- Tycho Nestoris, yep, uh, Uh, said that he even pitched for his character of Tycho Nestoris to be left as the last man standing once winter has fallen on Westeros. I pitched to Dan and David, the showrunners, that I should be the last person alive in the show because obviously if anyone survives, it is the Banks. They just laughed at me. I can imagine one final shot where I just walk among the bodies of absolutely everyone, turning to the camera and say, Next. (laughs) (laughs) First arriving in season four of the show, Tycho has been a relatively minor part of the piece. However, the climax of season seven saw Nestoris offer Cersei Lannister a grim ultimatum if House Lannister wanted the continued support of the Iron Bank. The scheming queen made good on her promise to pay her debts, three million golden dragons, and form a shaky alliance with the Iron Bank and sellsword company known as the Golden Company. All of this leads nicely into the Iron Bank and Tycho being a major factor in Game of Thrones season eight. While fans will likely laugh off Gaddis's pitch, he could actually have given away a plausible ending. Who is to say it won't be the Iron Bank left after all the battles are over? With rumored connections to the House of Black and White, the Bravosi Bank is one of the most dangerous powers to grace the show. Also, as the showrunners push through, the, through with the idea of multiple endings, maybe Tycho Nestoris counting coins will be one of the finales filmed. All we do know is that Game of Thrones promises a bittersweet ending that fans are sure to discuss for decades to come. Yep. (laughs) Hundreds of years to come. (laughs) Given uh, given the cutthroat nature of author George R.R. Martin and that of showrunners David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, it will be amazing if anyone is still standing at the end of that abridged season eight. 
That being said, the Iron Bank left to rule over the frozen remains of the Seven Kingdoms is certainly an interesting prospect. And I want to add a little uh, tidbit of info for you guys here. This is totally a plausible ending if, in terms of like the realistic nature of, uh, of the story. There's three types of conquest when it comes to um, our world. There's religious conquest. And you can't maintain, you can't like convince people to believe everything all of the time. So it's doomed for failure. It'll work part, you know, part of the ways, but there'll always be another religion or a, a different group of um, like an atheists, people who don't buy into it, whatever. Then there's military conquest, but you can't maintain troops morale all the time. And you can't convince people to fight for any cause all the time. So eventually, inevitably, military conquest will fail on a permanent global scale. But then there's the third type of conquest, the most insidious type that most people are unaware is even taking place. It's right over the heads because it's based in math, and that is economic conquest. If you're interested in that, um, feel free to send me an email and I will expound on that, but this is a Game <laughs> of Thrones podcast. <laughs> um, our next item comes to us from Bustle. Kit Harrington wants Jon Snow and Daenerys' Game of Thrones relationship to get even more inappropriate. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so do I, I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm rooting for incest babies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels like an eternity since Game of Thrones Season 7 wrapped in August, and fans aren't alone in thinking this. Apparently... In uh, the off-season, Kit Harrington has lost his mind. The actor has a proposal for how Jon Snow reacts to learning Daenerys is his aunt in season eight, and it is a lot. Um, arguably too much. Rose Leslie's fiancé has played Jon Snow since 2011, and one would think he'd have a good grip on the character by now. However, on October 21st, Harrington revealed that he's ready for Jon Snow to be super into the idea of Danny being his aunt. Say what? <laughs> Before the series wraps in presumably 2019, Jon Snow will find out that Daenerys, political rival, political ally, and his new lover is his aunt. And during an interview with The Guardian, Harrington revealed how he thinks Jon Snow will react to the reveal. That sound you heard in your head just now? That's a record scratch processing that bit of information. Who thinks like that? As confirmed in the Game of Thrones Season 7 finale, Jon is actually Aegon Targaryen, the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark. Since Rhaegar and Lyanna were wed in a secret ceremony, this makes Jon the rightful heir to the Iron Throne. He's a Targaryen. He's not only not a bastard, but a descendant of one of the most ancient and powerful families in Westeros. Remember, the fans know this. Jon Snow, true to form, does not. <laughs> you know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> Uh, also a Targaryen, Daenerys, Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, etc., being the last remaining Targaryen is her whole thing. Sure, over the last seven seasons, Jon Snow has definitively become unpredictable. He's still sweet and fierce and frustratingly noble, but he has a dark side now. Dark enough to be psyched about incest? <laughs> Hopefully not. It's, a much, it's much more in character for Jon to have a total freakout, because that would be a lot of information for anyone to process. The inheritance, the incest. Jon Snow's only been in love with one other person, Egret, the fiery wildling. And now he's in love with his political rival slash ally slash aunt. There's no way his reaction will be as bad as Harrington hopes. There can't be. 
In general, the young king in the North has been through an unthinkable amount on the HBO series. In seven seasons, he's been separated from his family, nearly murdered, actually murdered, (laughs) brought back to life, fallen in love, watched his love die in front of him, and on and on. Jon Snow grew up believing he was Ned Stark's bastard son, and his entire life has been based on this lie. So it's not completely strange of Harrington to hope his character has some wiggle room for a grand reveal. Quote, I really hope that he just nods slowly and goes, damned right. <laughs> Something really horribly inappropriate. And you find out John's had a really sick mind the whole time. That's the way I'd love to play it. I'll try it for one take anyway. <laughs> That's hilarious. Then again, for someone with so much power, Snow is improbably naive. He's experienced a lot in Westeros, but attributes too much significance to having traveled beyond the wall. It's also been a few episodes since he's let any emotion loose. Arguably, his last great meltdown followed season six, his uh, ba- Battle of the Bastards. The idea of Jon Snow, or the idea of Snow taking a whole yeah baby approach to this massively <laughs> weird and complicated case of incest, no way. But maybe fans wouldn't be above the uh, the aforementioned one take on a Game of Thrones season eight blooper reel. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to see that. <laughs> yeah, I, he better do that. That'd be hilarious. Yeah. Her next item is an article from Winter is Coming. Heifer Julius Bjornsson talks the mountain and how he could crush Conor McGregor. Playing Gregor, the mountain Clegane, for the past four seasons on Game of Thrones has afforded Heifer Julius Bjornsson opportunities the professional strongman might not otherwise have enjoyed. From uh, hawking home carbonation products, crazy... uh, like commercials that he's done to uh, cutting his comedy chops with public stunts. The Icelandic behemoth is a man of many skills. At one point, he even got to spar with UFC superstar Conor McGregor about that he lost or so it looks. Speaking to RT at a sports nutrition exposition in Moscow, Bjornsson painted a different picture and talked a little about the role that got him here. Yes, I had a sparring session with him. The, uh, he said of McGregor, just, uh, just a joke one. A while ago, before his big fight against Jose Aldo, I had to hold myself back because I have too much power for a man of his size. If I would push all my power into him, I would crush him. <laughs> <laughs> Bjornsson weighs 400 pounds. McGregor weighs 155. Wow. Damn, that's a big difference. Yeah, that's we double. Can believe... And then some. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, two and a half, basically. Yeah. We have, uh, we can believe some crushing could have happened, although after what happened to Oberyn, we'd just as soon not think about it. <laughs> as for, <laughs> he crushed his head like this! <laughs> I couldn't resist. As for oh, his not. Game of Thrones counterpart, Bjornsson is fond of Cersei's murderous enforcer, although they don't have much in common, thankfully. I do like him. He's an interesting character, and I do like to act him. It is different because I'm used to talk. But in the show, he doesn't talk. So it can be very difficult sometimes when you're just standing there and doing nothing or just killing people. Obviously, in real life, I don't kill people. (laughs) So it can be very difficult. (laughs) At least Bjornsson can relax on set without having to worry about memorizing all those tricky lines. It's much more fun to just stand around until it's time to rip someone's head off. (laughs) Classic. Oh, man. I bet he's fun in real life. Yeah, he seems like he's a cool guy. Yeah. He's younger than me, man. I just turned 30. He's like 28. That's he crazy. He can crush me. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, he and Jojen Reed are like the same age, and those guys are like 
polar opposites in terms of physicality, which is yeah, he's insane. like five of Jojen. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's it for news, and we will be back for Ravens calls. And it's time for Ravens Calls. You want to start, Wendy? Sure. All right. May Almardini says, Arya gets her first kill and Varys is fighting for the realm. I think in this rewatch, Varys is becoming one of my favorite characters. <laughs> yeah, me too. Varys is awesome. Yes. S- Sarah Larkham says, This episode had a lot of foreshadowing for future seasons. One. Rickon saying to Bran that Rob won't be returning to Winterfell. Two, the White coming back to life and then Jon Snow killing the White with fire. Three, Sir Barristan Selmy saying he doesn't want to die with dignity. And fast forward to when he and Grey Worm are fending off the harpies and he dies. Four, when Sansa writes that letter to Rob, Maester Lewin saying it's Sansa's writing but the Queen's words. It's brought back up in season seven when Arya confronts Sansa about that letter. My own speculation. Bran must have showed Arya what Sansa did to defend their father before his beheading. That must have convinced Arya that Sansa always loved her father and has always been loyal to her family and house. That's a good point. I never considered that, that Bran could have told Arya that Sansa begged for Ned in front of the king. I definitely think Bran came into it, but I also thought that maybe... Because we know Littlefinger has spies everywhere and he lurks. I thought maybe Arya and Sansa were just playing a part to make Littlefinger think that he was still in control of the situation. It's yeah, a little hard definitely. to tell. I think it's a combo of both, probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there was a scene that was cut where uh, Sansa goes to see Bran and they talk about it. And um, Bran reveals thing like, you know, reveals that... Uh, like the truth about everything or whatnot. So their brand was involved with this situation for sure at Winterfell in season seven. Right. But I don't think we needed that <clears throat> scene because I think it was better not to know what was going to happen. That was I, so much better. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's why they decided to cut it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I yeah, agree with that. I, I back I that choice. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Hashtag Wendy approved. <laughs> um, from Kristen Howe. Hi, Kristen. Varys, while hard to tell where he stands the entire series, has always been truthful in who or what he serves, the realm. He is the people's voice and has never deterred from that. It makes him one of the more honorable characters of the series. Poor Drogo. His wife is the one who inadvertently killed him. His son was never the stallion to mount the world, but the life to which a dragon could eventually be born. His life, Drogo's life, and Daenerys' rebirth. <laughs> Dragons are coming. Dragons are coming. They are. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Lara Willie Swink finally had a chance to watch an episode. <laughs> <laughs> Lara Willie Swink says, doing a rewatch really makes you appreciate how much the story they fit in si- into 60 minutes. So much development happened in this episode, from the Starks being decimated in King's Landing, to Rob gathering his banners, to John's first encounter with a white, to Sir Barristan's retirement, to Danny's mercy setting in motion the events that will lead to the death of her son and stars. And I didn't realize how much I've missed the dialogue. Some of the best of any television show. 
The dialogue between Tyrion and Bronn, starting from, what do you want, Bronn? Gold? Women? Golden women? <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to, I still like living. Or, I like living. Classic. I still don't believe that Sirio Farrell is dead. How can the greatest <laughs> swordsman in all of Bravos be killed by that lowly cur, Marin Trent? Good, good word there. Nice, Lara. Remember his last words. What do we say to the god of death? Sirio was not dying that day. I really hope to see him in season seven, if we haven't seen him already. You know what I mean, Jockin? Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. I, I'm, I'm all down for that. <laughs> Me too. I would love to see that guy come back. That would be the coolest. Watch Nymeria, like, saves him or something. He just, like, shows up uh, yeah. with Nymeria. <laughs> yeah. Or, hell, maybe he is Nymeria. He's a lycanthrope. Uh, we, we, we've, got, we've got dragon blood. We've got... Faceless men. Now we've got fucking wolf men, too. That'd yes. Be cool. <laughs> yep. um, from our Patreon group where we do a rewatch of um, Game of Thrones. I think this is our second rewatch we've done all the way from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, Chris, Kristen Howell oh, oh, comments. Oh, I got this. I'll, I'll read Chris, Kristen and then you play yourself. Okay. All right, so I'm Kristen. Alistair Thorne makes me want to punch babies. I love that. Damn. That's so great. <laughs> yeah i feel the same way about alistair uh, <laughs> sir barristan even now i could cut through the five of you like carving a cake fuck yeah i love that sir barristan and uh emily's response was i felt so bad for him he served his whole life and that's how his service ends blah yeah at <laughs> least his service to that king yeah. I feel like he uh, he probably feels like he dodged a bullet once he finally gets to Danny and um, you know <laughs> is serving the real blood of the dragon again. And I think he was happy with that. Yeah, I yeah, I think he that knows what a monster right Joffrey is. Yeah, that was the right way to end. Yeah, he you could already tell he wasn't stoked with Joffrey and Cersei in the last episode when Cersei ripped up the king's command and he was like, "Those are the king's words." You know. Yes. <laughs> so he could definitely. Uh, see him coming to appreciate this eventually uh, despite the you know the the uh, on its surface tarnishment of his of his um his honor which too bad he didn't make it back to westeros because that yeah. would be really cool if he came back and got to cross that line out of the king's guard you know dis uh you know let let go um dishonorably <laughs> yeah would suck he would have um, hated um, serving Joffrey and Cersei. So oh, yeah. It was Would've, all just as well. Definitely. Definitely. All right. That's our show. Episode 50, the big 5 0. That's amazing. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Um, yeah. Congratulations to uh, to Game of Microphones and everybody that's been a part of it. And, and um, Duncan. Oh, thank you. But yeah, you know, <laughs> we're at the big fifty now. We're we're getting up there with the big boys. Yep. So it'll be fun to uh, to see the show progress over the next year, and uh, I can't wait till we get everything covered. Um, yeah, we yeah. got at least fifty more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have what? It's been. Eight episodes so far, so yeah. that leaves us with uh, with um, fifty nine episodes to cover. Yeah, just what sixty seven yep. total, right? So. Yep, and then six more. Oh, it's gonna be awesome! <laughs> Huge thanks to Wendy, our guest host, for joining us this episode. 
been oh, thank awesome you for having, having me. Thank you. You're welcome. I, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> and I, I, I just love this uh, podcast. It's great. And uh, I can't wait for it to come out every week. Awesome. Yeah, same here. I, I love doing it. And uh, yeah. it's always so much fun to do. And I love hearing from, from all of you guys out there. So if you want to call us, you can always call us at 813-563-3739. That's 813-JOFFREY. If you'd like to write in, you can email us. That's right, at ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. You can always check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast. All right, everybody. There will be another episode next week. We'll be covering Season 1, Episode 9, Baylor cry with us about Ned's death. <laughs> I can't essentially. wait. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you like the podcast, take a split second and give us a like on Facebook or a review on iTunes. It would really help uh, get the word out there that we're continuing to issue content for the next year leading up to the season eight. So that'd be awesome. We'd really appreciate it. I thank you guys in advance for taking the time to do that. So that's our show. Thanks for listening. Rumors of your demise were unfounded. So sorry to disappoint you. We don't really, <laughs> we don't really know what happens when they wake up, but we know. And in, in our uh, Syria. I think I got that.